Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you here along with us in the new year. Uh, Last week I mentioned, (coughs) pardon me, how, in my opinion, the big story of uh, the year, big Catholic story for 2021, was the release of the Pope's motu proprio, Traditionis Custodes, suppressing the traditional Latin Mass, and, uh, you know, how that story kind of was resurrected right at the end of the year, just in time for Christmas, on December the 18th, when the Congregation for the Doctrine of Worship and the Sacraments released an uh, accompanying instruction that, uh, you know, is uh, allegedly an answer to uh, to Bishop's dubia um, on Traditionis Custodes. And uh, I want to point out that his already, <laughs> I can already give you a, a very predictable um, uh, story of hypocrisy on the implementation of Traditionis Custodes uh, by one American bishop. We're going to talk about that later. Also, since it is the first week of January, it is time for New Year's resolutions. Have you made a New Year's resolution? Well, I can tell you that I have. My New Year's resolution is that I'm going to stop being nice. I'll talk about what I mean by that later in the program. Also, we're going to take a look at an article that I saw that asked if perhaps it is time to abandon the term traditional Catholic altogether. But uh, to begin with, unlike most of the Novus Ordo Catholics in the United States, Catholics who uh, follow the traditional calendar did not celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany this weekend. Uh, We will celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany on the Feast of the Epiphany, (laughs) which is uh, on the 6th, that's tomorrow. Uh, Still, this was quite a weekend liturgically for the Extraordinary Form. Uh, On the 1st, we celebrated uh, New Year's Day, of course, which is also the octave of Christmas and the Feast of the Circumcision of our Lord. Our Lord Jesus was circumcised eight days after his birth. And on January 2nd, we celebrated the Feast of the Most Holy Name of Jesus. Uh, I'd also mention that January 1st in the Novus Ordo is the Solemnity of the Mother of God, which is has always been an aspect of the traditional celebration for the octave of Christmas. But of special note this year uh, is that Pope Francis has dedicated uh, the year of our Lord 2022 to the Mother of God. And okay, that's, that is a good thing. And uh, hopefully, if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what was the big story of the year 2020 uh, in the Catholic world, in my opinion anyway, which was the approval of the devotion to Our Lady of America. And we'll talk about all of that as we go. But uh, to begin with, January 1st. January 1st is New Year's Day, of course, because the civil New Year begins on that day, same as the ecclesiastical year begins on the first Sunday of Advent. So New Year's is a kind of traditional opportunity to dedicate the next 12 months to the service of God so that with the help of His grace, we can live this year in a way that is to His honor and glory and our sanctification. This, of course, is just to fulfill the first and greatest commandment, to to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Also, as I mentioned uh, um, earlier, you know, it, it's the solemnity of, of the Mother of God. So it's also a time to, date our, to dedicate ourselves to following her example of following the first commandment. And as usual, uh, still here in the first week of January, just this morning when I arrived at the office, I wished some of my uh, co-members of uh, Virgin Most Powerful here a happy new year. And that's something that we do, and it's, uh, and it's a good thing. You know, because the second of the great commandments is to love your neighbor. 
and uh, to wish them well and, and to, uh, to desire the good <clears throat> for your fellow man. So having dedicated the new year to God, we can now take this opportunity to renew our efforts to foster love and harmony amongst our neighbors and fulfill the obligation of charity, uh, you know, by wishing each other uh, happiness and prosperity. All right, the octave of Christmas, also, as I mentioned, the circumcision of Christ, followed by the holy name, because it was at his circumcision that he received the name of Jesus. And so the gospel for both those uh, liturgies is the same, and we'll be reading that in a moment. But um, the octave of Christmas, circumcision of our Lord, we are reminded in the introit, which uh, the first half is taken from Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess uh, that the Lord Christ Jesus is in the glory of God the Father. And in the second half of the introit is from Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how glorious is your name over all the earth. What a fine beginning. Then the opening prayer, O God, who appointed your only begotten Son to be the Savior of the human race, and commanded that he be called Jesus. And that's something to remember, that is that it's God the Father himself who chose the name Jesus for the second person of the Blessed Trinity made man. Uh, mercifully grant that we may enjoy in heaven the vision of him whose holy name we venerate on earth. And then the uh, there's a lesson from the Acts of the Apostles, from Acts chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if you are interrogating us today in regard to a good deed done to someone who was crippled and how he was healed, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that it was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, that this man standing before you was cured. This is the stone rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone." There is no salvation in anyone else, nor is there any other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. Amen. And then the gospel for the Feast of the Circumcision and uh, the gospel for the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus is Luke 2.21, one of the shortest gospels of the year. On the eighth day, when the time for the child's circumcision had arrived, he was given the name Jesus, the name the angel had given him, before he had been conceived in the womb. So on New Year's Day, we celebrate our Lord's circumcision. And the question, I guess, is why did Jesus uh, subject himself to circumcision in the first place? Clearly, our Lord was without sin, so he certainly stood in no need of uh, circumcision, just as his mother was without sin and didn't need to be purified, you know, 40 days after his birth. So he, he submitted, though, to the rights of the Old Covenant for a number of reasons. First off, pardon me, because he is true man as well as true God. And according to the prophecies of the Old Testament, the, prophet, uh, the promised Redeemer was to be a true Israelite and a true son of Abraham. And to be recognized as such and to, in fact, be such required that he be circumcised. Uh, number two, by his very incarnation... Just by becoming man, um, our Lord took upon himself the sins of mankind so as to make satisfaction for them. And as the fathers and the doctors tell us, it was for this purpose that he shed his blood for the first time, his precious blood, at the circumcision, 
to show that he had come to redeem us by his blood. Therefore, the name of Jesus, or Savior, was given him at the time of the circumcision. You know, it's one of those things where you realize that if Jesus is God, and he is, then he's an infinite person, and his every act has an infinite value. And that means that the blood shed at his circumcision would have been sufficient to satisfy the justice of God and, and you know, be efficacious for our salvation. And yet he chose to go to the cross so that we would understand what our sins really deserve. All right, and number three, by voluntarily obeying the law, by submitting himself to the rite of circumcision, he wished to give us an example of obedience to the divine law. You know, it's like at his baptism, when he goes and John says, oh, I should be baptized by you. But he says, I must fulfill all justice. Right? He has to give that example. He has to do everything that he expects us to do. All right, the church of G, uh, the church of <laughs> the church teaches that the name of Jesus is the greatest, the sweetest of all names, um, because if the blessed name of Jesus did not exist, there would not exist for us pardon or grace or eternal happiness. It is the object of our faith and our hope and our love. And uh, the name of Jesus also testifies to the divine nature of our Redeemer. Jesus. It doesn't just mean Savior, it means divine Savior. It is, in the Hebrew, it's Yeshua, which is the same as the name Joshua, right? Literally, it means Yahweh saves. So the name of Jesus says to us, God is our salvation. And that's why St. Paul writes, in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And also in Colossians, he says, whatever you do in word or in deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's no surprise that devotion to the holy name of Jesus is one of the oldest of uh, Catholic devotions, and it's also one of the simplest. It was revived and promoted in the Middle Ages by the great doctor of the church, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. You knew we were going to get through uh, (laughs) a segment without mentioning St. Bernard. And uh, Father Paul O'Sullivan, whose works we have often recommended here, uh, wrote a popular booklet about the Holy Name of Jesus that you can still get from, from uh, Tan Books, and it's called The Wonders of the Holy Name. And in that booklet, he says, The divine name is, in truth, a mine of riches. It is the font of the highest holiness and the secret of the greatest happiness that a man can hope to enjoy on this earth. It is so powerful, so certain, that it never fails to produce in our souls the most wonderful results. It consoles the saddest heart and makes the weakest sinner strong. It obtains for us all kinds of favors and graces, spiritual and temporal. Two things we must do, he says. First, we must understand clearly the meaning and value of the name of Jesus. And secondly, we must get into the habit of saying it devoutly frequently, hundreds and hundreds of times every day. Far from being a burden, he says, this will be an immense joy and consolation. The name of Jesus is sweet and gentle and attractive and devotion to it, a mark of predestination. We're going to talk more about the holy name of Jesus and lots more when we return with No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us.
back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about the holy name of Jesus and how the great saints, doctors of the church, teach us that the name of Jesus contains within it one of the shortest and most agreeable ways of acquiring uh, and retaining the grace of sanctity. Because the holy name of Jesus is itself an indulgence prayer and a source of blessings. Every time you say Jesus with devotion, you gain a partial indulgence, uh, either for yourself, of course, or that you can apply to the souls in purgatory. So you can uh, relieve the souls of purgatory from their awful pains or even liberate them from purgatory altogether, and then they become your friends and, and, and your patrons, and they pray for, for you in return. Uh, St. Paul says that Jesus merited the name of Jesus by his passion and death, which we know are made present in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So every time that you or I say Jesus, we can make it our intention to offer to God all the Masses that are being said uh, that day. You know, the Holy Mass is celebrated around the world and around the clock, and at every hour of the day, somewhere on the earth, the host and chalice are being raised, and our Lord is becoming truly present on the altar, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Blessed Sacrament. Father O'Sullivan says, you know, he reminds us that we can and should share in all of those Masses. You know, he said the Mass is not only for those who assist at church, but for those who, who desire to hear it or who desire to offer it with the priest. All we have to do is reverently say Jesus with the intention of offering these Masses and participating in them. He says, by doing this, we have a share in all of them. It is a wonderful grace to assist at one Mass, what will it not be to offer and share in all the Masses celebrated every day? Food for thought. Um, another easy and efficacious way to practice devotion to the Holy Name is to repeat other uh, short um, and indulgent uh, prayers that contain the Holy Name. Father O'Sullivan you know, points out, and of course he's writing in the, in the 40s, I think, but he's saying that you know, there's People all over the world have the custom of saying these, you know, short ejaculatory prayers 500,000 times a day. Sacred heart of Jesus, I place my trust in thee. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Sacred heart of Jesus, make our hearts like unto thine, etc. And of course, just the holy name of Jesus all by itself. He says, these are most consoling devotions because they bring oceans of grace to those who practice them and give immense relief to the holy souls. And, and he asks us to consider, if you say a prayers like that a thousand times a day, what a multitude of souls, not only you know, the good of your own soul, but the multitude of souls that you can relieve in purgatory, you know, what will it be at the end of a month, you know, or a year or 50 years? And he says, and if you do not say these ejaculations, what an immense number of graces and favors uh, you will have lost. It's quite possible, he says, and even easy to say these ejaculations a thousand times a day. But if you don't say them a thousand times a day, then 500 times or 200 times. You know, he, he mentions that St. MacTilde uh, was accustomed to offer the passion of Jesus in union with all the masses uh, set around the world for the uh, poor souls in purgatory. And that our Lord granted her a vision one day of purgatory being opened and thousands of souls going to heaven as a result of her little prayer. So when we say Jesus, we can offer the passion and the masses of the world, either for ourselves or for the souls in purgatory, or for any other intention. 
you know, for the church, for the world at large, for, for our own country in particular. So to sum up, every time we say the name of Jesus, let it be our intention, number one, to offer to God all the infinite love and merits of the Incarnation. Number two, to offer to God the passion and death of Jesus Christ. And number three, to offer to God all the Masses celebrated in the world today for his glory and for our intentions. As Father O'Sullivan says, all we have to do is say one word, Jesus, but knowing what we're doing. Okay, uh, it is the first of the year, first week of January, time, as I said, for making New Year's resolutions. And uh, most folks, I think, make resolutions like, you know, uh, this is the year I quit smoking, or uh, it's my rev- resolution, I'm going to stop eating junk food, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose some weight, I'm going to stop watching so much TV, uh, and so on. Uh, some might also resolve to overcome, you know, more serious vices, vices against, you know, the Sixth and Ninth Commandment, for example. Uh, Thomas Akempis says in The Imitation of Christ, he said, if every year we rooted out just one vice, we would soon become perfect. Well, that's, that's, again, that's food for thought. And, and of course, uh, a lot of Catholics, rather than, than giving up some bad practice, resolve to embrace some good practice. Like, you know, I'm going to start praying the rosary every day, or I'm going to go to, to, to weekday mass, or I'm going to read the Bible before bedtime, you know, things of that sort. Now, as for yours truly, my New Year's resolution for the year of our Lord 2022 is to stop being nice. Okay? No more Mr. Nice Guy. And allow me to elucidate. I um, was received into the church when I was in, you know, the second half of my uh, 30s. And, uh, and I came in with the sacramental grand slam. I was baptized, confirmation, first Holy Communion, all in the same Mass. And the reason is that I had uh, been brought up, as they say, unchurched. You know, my family, like millions of others in the early 1960s, just stopped going to church when I was still, you know, just a toddler. But I was taught to embrace the unofficial American religion of being nice. Okay, so first things first, what is nice? What does it mean to be nice? Uh, Well, being nice means to uh, uh, avoid conflict or controversy. You know, so consequently, the way I was brought up, it was not considered nice to discuss politics or religion in, in company. You know, but it's interesting that the word nice actually comes from a Latin word that means ignorant. Uh, by the 13th century, nice had taken on the connotation not only of ignorant, but foolish or stupid. Um, and so that, and, and why, why should that be? How, how, how is it, you know, how is it that the word nice, which means to avoid controversy, which means to avoid giving offense, uh, you know, or it should be a word that, that meant stupid or, or, or ignorant. Well, if being nice means going out of your way not to offend anyone, it, it's just more than that. It's going out of your way not to offend anyone without regard for the truth or for what is right. And that's the problem. You see, our, our society is so polarized. People today are so contentious. I'm sure that there's lots of folks that long uh, to return to those days of nicest. But the problem is that being nice is not a Christian virtue. Kindness is a virtue. Meekness Justice, prudence, temperance, fortitude, these are Christian virtues. 
but not niceness. I mean, you can read the scriptures until your eyes bleed, and you are never going to find the words, blessed are the nice, or thou shalt be nice. And there's a reason, because niceness is actually an offense against the virtue of courage, and especially spiritual courage. And I, you know, I casting my mind around for an inspiration, or an illustration, rather, uh, I couldn't help but think about Bishop Barron. You know, when he was still Father Robert Barron, uh, and he had the Word on Fire Ministries and all that, a lot of people pinned their hopes on Father Robert Barron, because they thought, here is a man who's, I mean, he's clearly educated, he's intelligent, he's articulate, he's engaging the culture in, in, a, in a positive way, and, and representing Catholicism at the same time. And when he became a bishop, I think a lot of people, and in fact, I know for a fact, that there were people who said, this guy is going to be the next Bishop Sheen. But then I think of the interview that he did with Ben Shapiro. Uh, I'm sure you know that Ben Shapiro is a, uh, a well-known conservative uh, talk show host. He's a conservative commentator. And he's a Jew. And he asked Bishop Barron, he said, well, you believe that, uh, you know, that uh, you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. I'm a Jew. I don't believe that Jesus was God. Does that mean I'm not going to go to heaven? I mean, this is my paraphrase, but, but words to that effect. And Bishop Barron kind of infamously replied that um, you don't have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven, that, in fact, uh, believing in Jesus is the preferred way to go to heaven, but not the only way. And that's the word I think that got him in trouble, is the preferred way. It, it was a missed opportunity because rather than being kind uh, or, or meek, he chose to be nice. He chose to try and avoid giving offense. And here's the thing. I mean, if it had been me and, and I had been asked that question, I would have said that the Catholic Church does not teach that all non-Catholics are going to hell. But what the Catholic Church does teach is that if a non-Catholic, a, a Muslim, a, a Buddhist, a Hindu, an, an atheist, if such a person should find themselves enjoying the beatific vision at the end of all things, please God they do, it will not be because that they were a good Muslim or a good Hindu or, or a good atheist. If they go to heaven, it will be because of the graces won by our Lord Jesus Christ on the Holy Cross and communicated to the world through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, and I believe that, and therefore I have not only a duty but a desire to share that good news with everyone. I'm not offended that people have other beliefs than mine, but I still want to share my belief with them. And I want to, as... St. Peter himself in the scripture says, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for your hope, but do it with gentleness and respect, right? You don't have to go out of your way to try and be offensive, but you need to stand up for the truth. And, you know, I think the, the good bishop really fumbled the ball. He really lost what could have been an important opportunity. And, and, you know, Pope Francis has, you know, we're so involved with ecumenism. And I believe that there, there is, and we talked about it on the show a number of weeks ago, 
that it's entirely possible to practice ecumenism in a way that is in line with the tradition of the Catholic Church. A true ecumenism where, you know, the, the, the end goal is to bring people into the fold. The problem is, I mean, the reason that the Church didn't get involved with ecumenism, uh, you know, until the 1960s, is the danger of indifferentism, that people start believing that all religions are the same or that it doesn't matter what religion you belong to, and they stop trying to present the truths of the faith to the people in their own life, which has a name, by the way. The, the name for that activity is called proselytism, right? This is not about banging people over the head, oh, become Catholic or else, but it is about presenting the truth when you have the opportunity, especially if somebody asks you, like St. Peter said, or like, you know, like Ben Shapiro asked Bishop Barron. We have not, not just a, a, a duty, but we should have a desire to do that. And that's why I have resolved to stop being nice. That and the fact that being nice is an offense against virtue. And we're going to talk about that and lots more when we come back uh, after this break. Is it time to abandon the term traditional Catholic? That and more when we return. More no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. We're talking about being nice, and my New Year's resolution is to stop being nice. Um, and that being nice is not a virtue. And I think that that's readily illustrated by what's going on in our society right now today. You know, if the primary goal of a society or a culture is to be nice in the sense of never offending anyone, then all it takes to undermine that, all it takes to, to disarm it and, and destroy it, is to be offended or even to pretend to take offense. The only thing necessary to occupy the moral high ground is to claim to be a victim, no matter, no matter how trivial or ridiculous or opposed to reality, you know, the, your alleged offense. You know, take, for example, you know, what, what can bring on this firestorm? Oh, I'm so offended by you. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. It's like, oh, the fact that you don't know that what you did was offensive, you don't understand why you've offended me, that offends me even more, right? How do you, how do you defend yourself? How do you win against that? And especially if, uh, for example, your offense was saying to uh, a man, oh, uh, good morning, sir. It's a nice day, isn't it? And then, and then you're in for this avalanche of, of uh, uh, you know, attack. And why? Well, th this is a man. Looks like a man, dresses like a man, walks like a man, talks like a man. And so you say, good morning, sir. Ah, but you use the word sir, and this man has decided that he's not a man after all, but he's actually a woman. No way for you to know that, but you'd best watch those pronouns. In fact, you rather than offend this man, you have to let him use uh, the woman's bathroom. You have to let him share a stall in the bathroom with your daughter. Or, or at his university, let him join the women's swim team and, and, uh, and belittle the accomplishments of, of the actual female swimmers. Or go into a boxing ring and, and beat some woman almost to death. All those things are apparently more important than offending 
a man who has who is in every way still a man other than the fact that he uh, uh, has decided to change his pronouns and that is you know and that's why i resolved to stop being nice now it doesn't mean i'm going to go out of my way to be purposely provocative or, or to go out of my way to offend anybody i hope to increase in the virtues of, of kindness and meekness among others but when I say that I resolve to stop being nice, it just means that if people claim to be offended by reality, okay, by, by, by the nature of things, the true nature of things as ordained by God, if people are, are offended by common sense or rational thought, or if they're offended by those things that are good and true and beautiful and, dare I say, normal, then they're the one with a the problem. They are the one with the problem. They are the ones who need to be educated. They are the ones who need to change their hearts and minds. They are the ones that need to amend their lives. Now, maybe a nice person wouldn't say that, but I believe a holy one would. And that is no nonsense. No nonsense. Yeah, that is a, that is a term that I coined when I started this program, uh, whatever, a couple of years ago. Um, and it's interesting that I read an article the other day uh, on the Crisis Magazine website from the 22nd of December from a lady named Angela Lill, who identifies as a traditional Catholic. And she, uh, her name of her article is, Is It Time to Stop Using the Label Traditional Catholic? And now, again, if you've listened to this program with any regularity, you know that I identify as a traditional Catholic or um, perhaps a no-nonsense Catholic, and now it's becoming my preferred term. But, but I don't define a person as a traditional Catholic because they exclusively attend the traditional Latin Mass. My definition of a traditional Catholic is any Catholic that can say, uh, you know, the act of faith and actually mean it. You know, in other words, I make, I make a distinction between a traditional Catholic and a traditionalist Catholic, okay? Angela Lill, in her article, same thing, she says, as a cradle Catholic growing up in the Novus Ordo, I had thought traditional Catholics were those families who were the backbone of our parish life. We all know the type. They go to church every Sunday in a passenger van full of kids. They actually pray their rosaries every day. And when you are sick or you have a new baby, they're at your front doorstep with a hot meal. Yeah, I, I knew a lot of folks like that, right? They are, uh, by the world standards, she says, very traditional. They live very traditional lives. And then she says, imagine their surprise in recent years to find out that they fall short of the label traditional Catholic. Uh, you know, today, Miss Lil, like I mentioned, she attends the Extraordinary Form of the Mass. And, and she goes on to say that the term traditional Catholic is now being used to marginalize Catholics who attend the traditional Mass, the Mass of the Ages, she says. Um, quoting now, she says, some use the term traditional Catholic to clump us in with set of acantists or loud, boorish uh, characters on Twitter. That is, those who reject the Pope and Vatican II. We see this even in the once conservative-leaning Bishop Robert Barron. In his remarks last March, accusing radically traditional Catholics or arch-traditional Catholics of a self-devouring Catholicism. And she says there was some backlash, but um, people said, surely, you know, Bishop Barron's not talking about folks who simply prefer the traditional Mass. He's talking about those extremists, right? The set of acantists, the, the people that reject the Pope, people who reject Vatican II. And she points out there's, the, you know, there's a confusion of terms. But subsequent comments, unfortunately, by Bishop Barron 
And of course, the recent acts from the Holy Father in the Vatican have made it very clear that today, and is quoting Miss Lill, anyone who participates in the Mass of the Ages is immediately held suspect as an extremist. And then she goes on to report how the secular press has glommed onto that term, traditional Catholic. Uh, and she points out a Washington Times story about the Biden administration's plan to um, expand the definition of extremism to include pro-life advocates, right? They're going to lump them in with the Ku Klux Klan and, and uh, you know, white supremacists and whatnot. And, and she says the Times uh, paints pro-abortion Catholic politicians like Biden and Pelosi as ordinary and devout and even, quote, deeply Catholic, as if belief in the sanctity of life was somehow optional for a Catholic. But then they use that term traditional Catholic in order to portray Catholics who are simply pro-life as though they were extremists. She says, quote, we ought to refuse the label, or, or rather, we ought to refuse to label the practices of the vast majority of ordinary Catholics, saints, and martyrs for well over a thousand years as something somehow fringe or unordinary within the church herself. Uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski put it this way. He said, what we're defending is not merely a preference, but an apostolic and patristic inheritance resting on the deepest of theological foundations. You know, and, and I agree with Angela Lill, labeling the core beliefs of the church as, you know, labeling them at all obscures the fact that they apply to everyone. You know, simply put, the church's traditional teachings uh, and the liturgy belong to all Roman Catholics. And that's no nonsense. Okay, and with that in mind, you know, I, I talked last week about how I thought the big story in the church for 2021 was Traditionis Custodis, uh, you know, the document from the Pope suppressing the traditional Mass, and how, just in time for Christmas, the Congregation for the Divine Worship published its list of 11 responses to alleged dubia from bishops around the world. And I said alleged because, um, you know, like those bishops whose answers to the questionnaire from the Vatican supposedly prompted Traditionis Custodius in the first place, the bishops here, uh, you know, asking for clarification about TC are also unnamed. Or, uh, you know, they, they say that these, these questions were compiled from various responses from bishops around the world. And, you know, we went into it last week. I'm not going to rehash it all. But, but those responses include that traditional priests who won't celebrate the Novus Ordo uh, have, must have their faculties to celebrate the traditional Mass removed. That, that no priest who's ordained after Traditionis Custodis can celebrate the traditional Mass without permission from the Holy See. Uh, that the few priests who are authorized to celebrate the traditional Mass may only celebrate one such Mass per day and may not celebrate the traditional Mass on a weekday if they also celebrate the Novus Ordo. Uh, the traditional Mass may not be said in parish churches unless it's impossible their word, impossible, to find another place, and the bishop then gets permission from the Holy See. Also, there can be no more ordinations, confirmations, weddings, baptisms, or funerals celebrated according to the traditional rites, except for the very few already extant and canonically erected traditional parishes, right? So if you have an FSSP parish or an ICK parish. You know, and what that means in the practical sphere is that the traditional sacraments are going to be permitted almost nowhere. And that's just half of them, okay? That's just <laughs> half of what that document goes into. Now, predictably, uh, some liberal bishops are very happy about this. And uh, Cardinal Blaise 
Supich of Chicago immediately released his guidelines to implement Traditionalist Custodis in the wake of the CDW's document. Um, and they go even further than, than Congregation of Divine Worship. For example, he says that the old rite may not be celebrated on the first Sunday of any month. So one Sunday out of the month, no traditional Mass. Uh, also, the traditional Mass may not be celebrated uh, at Christmas, uh, the, the Triduum, that's Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, or Pentecost Sunday. And priests may not celebrate the traditional Latin Mass uh, without permission both from the Archbishop and from the Vatican. Now, a goodly number of Catholics are calling hypocrisy on the good cardinal. And the reason is that, uh, well, in the letter that accompanied Traditionis Custodes, Pope Francis lamented the prevalence of liturgical abuse. He said, I'm saddened by the abuses in the celebration of the liturgy on all sides. In common with Benedict XVI, I deplore the fact that in many places the prescriptions of the new missal are not observed in celebration, but indeed come to be interpreted as an authorization for, or even a requirement of, creativity, which leads to almost unbearable distortions. Oh, that liturgical abuse in the Novus Ordo. Oh, that's so terrible. I'm, I'm going I'm to devote a whole paragraph to it. Now, how does that relate to Cardinal Supich? Well, when we come back, I'm going to tell you about a video posted on YouTube about a Christmas Eve mass in his diocese that he apparently thinks is fine and dandy, but the traditional mass is not. That and more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Hey, thanks for being with us. Happy New Year. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Hey, welcome back. Final round here on um, No Nonsense Catholic this week. I was talking before the break about Cardinal Supich and how he had uh, has implemented in the Diocese of Chicago even more draconian policies than those from Pope Francis's Traditionis Custodis or the doubling down document from the Congregation of Divine Worship from December 18th. And that there is a number of Catholics who are, you know, uh, calling him out as a hypocrite, Cardinal Supich, because, uh, you know, Traditionis Custodis, for one thing, not only does it suppress the Latin Mass, but uh, Pope Francis uh, expresses his lamentation of liturgical abuse in the Novus Ordo. Well, and how does that relate to Cardinal Supich? I mentioned that there is a video that got posted on YouTube. It is a video of the Christmas Eve Mass 2021 at St. Sabina's in Chicago, celebrated by their pastor, the infamous social activist uh, Chicago priest, Father Michael Fleger. You might remember him being in the news over uh, any number of issues back during the Obama administration. Now, this is a, uh, miss, <laughs> the video is of a two and a half hour liturgy, if you can call it that. That began, I mean, it, it starts out featuring an hour of music, uh, uh, modern contemporary music, uh, and even some secular music, not even all uh, uh, liturgical music, um, uh, and accompanied by quote unquote liturgical dancers all over the sanctuary and around the altar, and a full scale uh, uh, light show 
okay? Like, like, a, like a rock concert. Um, and then there was also a, a lady who got up, made a speech uh, about oh, racism and, and gun violence and other social ills, all, all important topics, no doubt. But she's up there often shouting during her, her little speech. Uh, just one wonders what it has to do with the Christmas Eve liturgy, especially because as she's giving her, her talk, actors come onto the stage, some of them even dressed up like, uh, like they were in the Ku Klux Klan, you know, d- dramatizing her, uh, uh, her words. Now, all of this stuff, like there's an hour of this before Father Flager ever even makes his appearance at the altar. And what this liturgy, quote-unquote, did not include was any of the obligatory introductory rites of the Novus Ordo Mise. There was no greeting, no penitential act, no, no collect, right? No opening prayer. If this Mass wasn't invalid, and it may well have been invalid, uh, it was most certainly not licit. But we're supposed to believe that Pope Francis and Cardinal Supich care about liturgical abuse? We're supposed to believe that it's, that it's the, you know, the traditional Midnight Mass on Christmas, right? The, the, the traditional Latin Mass, that's the problem? And this, and this nonsense represents the lecturandi of the Church? You know, I'm sorry, that one doesn't, that does not pass the nonsense test. I think maybe one of the comments on YouTube put it best. Somebody said, if the bishop really cares about his faithful, he put a stop to this abomination, not the Latin Mass. And you can see the video, it's called um, Christmas Eve hyphen celebration. And it's on YouTube. You can see it for yourself, you know, if you've got the stomach for it, I don't, I don't recommend it. But I just couldn't help compare uh, that video to what I experienced in the extraordinary form this Christmas. You know, first off, I don't know what people, why people think traditional Catholicism is a hate crime. Because <laughs> for one thing, um, you know, my son's served at the altar. My youngest son is uh, almost 18, and he still uh, uh, serves at uh, the altar uh, at our church. Um, but there's, we have quite a large group of altar boys uh, for the traditional Latin mass. I think on Christmas, there was about 15 of them in the sanctuary wearing their cassocks and surplices and doing their, you know, various tasks. And some of those boys are white and some of those boys are black and some are Hispanic and some are Asians and they all work together in perfect harmony and they reflect the, the congregation which is, you know, our congregation, it's traditional Latin Mass, comes in all colors and all ages, from, from brand new babies all the way up to the very elderly. And we don't represent the church? These are people, I mean, these are not extremists. These are not people that hate the Pope or, or you know, don't believe in Vatican II or whatever. I mean, a lot of these younger people, man, they don't even have a dog in that fight. All they want is to worship God reverently. At the at the same mass, you know, where that, that formed the, the great saints of the church. My question, and I'm going to leave it a question: Why? Why are there Catholic prelates that hate that so much? Search traditional Christmas Eve mass and see all the pictures of these young families worshiping at midnight by candlelight, these beautiful, reverent masses. Who could hate that? 
What are they afraid of? Because, you know, it seems to me to be an example of spiritual and racial solidarity, orthodoxy, reverence. Is that what they're afraid of? They're afraid of people coming together instead of, instead of being divided. I, I don't pretend to know the answer, but I think it's time we started asking the question. I also mentioned that uh, Pope Francis did a good thing on uh, January 1st by dedicating the year of our Lord 2022 to the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mary, the mother of God. And if Traditionis Custodes was the big story uh, in the Catholic world in 2021, then going back another year, uh, in my opinion, the big story of 2020 was the official approval of devotion to Mary under the title Our Lady of America by the bishops of competence here in the United States. You know, and I talked about it a couple of years ago. We'll probably talk about it, maybe uh, go into it in depth next week. Because again, I, you know, it's, it's, it's ours. It's for, when, when I say ours, I mean Catholics in the United States of America. Obviously, all of these, you know, in, in the way that Our Lady of uh, Lords, you know, came to France, or Our Lady of Fatima w- was for Portugal, or, or Our Lady of Good Success 400 years ago was for Ecuador. But then, you know, it starts there and then, you know, goes to the whole world. And obviously we, we you know... Um, our Lady of America is really Our Lady of America, the, uh, the Immaculate Conception, who's the patroness of America. But, uh, you know, and I think some people ask, and perhaps rightly, you know, why would Our Lady come? Uh, the, the visionary uh, saw Mary back in the 1950s, Sister Mildred Noisel, uh, Mary Ephraim, I think was her religious name. Um, but, you know, back in the 1950s, why would she come with yet another title when we as a nation— a hundred years before, you know, back in the in the in the eighteenth or nineteenth century, that we had been uh, consecrated to the Blessed Virgin Mary, that the bishops of the United States chose her as the patroness um, of uh, the United States under the title the Immaculate Conception. And and Sister uh, Noisel explained, our Blessed Mother called herself Our Lady of America in response to the love and desire that reached out for this title in the hearts of her children in America. That it was a response to the prayers of Catholic Americans. That Our Lady would come with this title. And just as the United States bishops, uh, you know, in the 1800s had asked for a zealous imitation of her virtues in that, in that first consecration to, of our nation to the Immaculate Virgin, and in unity with the bishops of, of, you know, the 20th century and the 21st century, Our Lady of America asks us again to imitate her virtues, especially her purity. And who in their right mind can deny that that is a neglected virtue in our society today? I mean, certainly Catholics uh, uh, could be better examples of Our Lady's virtues than we are currently. And devotion to Our Lady of America calls us to imitate her virtues, especially her virtue of purity. And that's not just about the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments. It's not just sexual purity, although that's obviously a a, a big major issue in our culture. But it's her purity that because she was without sin, because she was full of grace. And we imitate that purity by attaining and remaining in a state of grace. 
that's the primary way that we imitate the virtues of Mary. And then also uh, those of St. Joseph and the Holy Child, that we would imitate the virtue. In our homes, we would imitate the virtues of the Holy Family, right? Vatican II, John Paul II uh, got around to calling the, the, the family the domestic church because it's really in the family that, that, we, that we learn our faith, learn how to live our faith. You know, the final apparition to um, Sister Mary Ephraim Noisel was December the 20th of 1959. That's the day I was born. And I don't think there's any coincidence, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I certainly have a great love for Our Lady. And if she was appearing here in America on the day I was born, I think, you know, it means something to me at least. You know, but the thing is, who in 1959 could have predicted the depths of depravity into which our culture has fallen, you know, during the, that intervening 61 years? Who could have, you, you, you know, again, 10 years ago, if you told me half of the stuff that's going on today, I would have thought you were, uh, you know, crazy. Who could have thought? Well, Our Lady, obviously, all the way back in 19... Uh, 59, all the way back in 1599, when she appeared as uh, Our Lady of Good Success. And in each case, she calls upon us to imitate her, to imitate her purity, to imitate the example of the Holy Family of Nazareth as the cure. This is, you know, this is how we combat. You you ask, well, how do we defend ourselves? This is how. The message of Our Lady of America doesn't pretend to, to offer some new theological understanding of Our Lady, it's a gift. It's a gift from heaven to acknowledge our love for her. And she's not calling for a new consecration or, or pilgrimages, but acknowledging the consecration that's already been made, reminding us that this nation, the United States of America, is under the patronage of the Immaculate Virgin Mother of God. And that's something that we need to remember, and I believe we need to promote. Next week, we're going to talk about Um, Our Lady of America, and we're going to talk especially about the devotion to the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity. That was an important part of her message. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He also said, my kingdom is within you. The kingdom of God is within you, and wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. And that's at your family rosary. That's when you go to Mass on Sunday. That's when you you pray with your wife or your husband or your children. God is there. The kingdom is there. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm Matthew Arnold. Thank you for listening. Um, Thanks for everything you do for Virgin uh, Most Powerful Radio. Until next week, may God richly bless you and your family.